we are all trying to heal trust. And sometimes we're establishing it. Sometimes we're building on the trust that is inherent. And sometimes we're repairing broken trust. I'm Adele Jared Carr. You're listening to Revillaging, the podcast that dives deep into our longing for meaningful community. When we think about who's in our community on an intimate level rather than community in a purely functional sense, a lot of us wouldn't include our colleagues. Work is often seen as a space that is separate from the rest of our lives. We show up in it in a competitive, self-protective, performative stance. But increasingly, we know that this kind of demarcation and self-armoring is counterproductive. Sahel Koilo is an executive coach and innovator who works with companies at the intersection of business strategy, creativity and spirituality. He also has a podcast called Drunk on Spirit, and I found his series one episode on leadership, warrior, healer, artist, stage, particularly inspiring. He's currently developing new workshops and trust, so we wound up with a lot to talk about around bringing your whole self to the workplace. Sahil was born in India, grew up in the States, and does a fair bit of working between places at the minute. I caught up with him over Skype at his apartment in Barcelona. Please note that there is strong language in this one. In the way I like to think of spirituality is simply the self, is how much of myself as spirit and essence is integrated into what I'm doing. As soon as you add that piece into it, all of a sudden there's an element that just is not just the mind, how smart is this thing? How well does this thing work? There's an element of like, oh, am I reflected in it? Are people, the end user, the end customer reflected in it? Are their needs playing out? And is my heart reflected in it? You know, like, so as soon as I bring in that level of, hey, I have to bring myself into absolutely everything that I do, because when I do, product is better and my experience is better that's when I feel like we start to play in a really interesting space. I mean, the the short version of my story is I, you know, I was born in India. I grew up in the U.S. In the, on the East Coast. For me, it was very much about following the rule, following the system that life had given you and said, hey, you know, you know, be this kind of person, achieve in this kind of way, hit all these aspects of life, money, partner, house, thing, and then you'll be happy, right? So mm-hmm. I kind of followed that recipe. And um, I was living in New York City, I was working in business, working in creative agencies, and then working at American Express and being client side. And I did that for 12 years. And I really I love business. I love the environment. I love the intersection of you know creativity and business. And and I achieved, you know, kind of a lot of success in it. And I remember this moment where I was making a ton of money. I had this beautiful apartment. I had this partner. And it all just felt really empty to me. And not because any of those things were inherently wrong. It was because 
I didn't know how to fill them with me. I kind of had this sort of pinnacle of success, yet I had no capacity to enjoy it or even to see myself reflected in it. That kind of put me into a pretty deep downward spiral of like, holy shit, I feel like I've been lied to. The world has lied to me. They gave me kind of this like booby prize and I like chased and hunted it down and sacrificed years of myself in the chasing of this. And I get there and I'm like, what the fuck? Why doesn't this feel better? And that's when I really began the search in earnest to work with the teacher to understand if these things would become more meaningful if I was able to fill them with more of me. I had to understand the totality of who I was. And so I began a journey of working with the teacher, understanding my shadow, my trauma, my pain, as much as my power, my creativity, my light. And realizing that it was actually the combination of the two that made me whole. Mm -hmm. And that is what inspired me to come back into business, but to do it in a different way. It was a comeback through the helping people grow angle because I realized it was like this problem wasn't, while it was a personal one, it was also something I had seen with my peers as well of a Mm -hmm. lot of people hustling in business and not really feeling that fulfilled by it. What if one path of fulfillment is actually bringing more of you into the company, into the role? What if the company could serve as an environment where you could both grow skill-wise, experientially, as a human, as well as as a professional, and you felt safe? You felt like you could experiment with different parts of who you were. You could create connections with different kinds of people. Like what if companies could do that? I kind of wound my way uh, into that kind of work. You talk about it helping you with your connection to yourself, but do Mm -hmm. you think that it's also helped with your connection to other people as well, bringing more of yourself into your work? The the way I like to think about it is like, we're, we're like houses and a lot of us live on this ground floor. Right. And we'll hire an interior designer and we'll like pimp it out and it'll look really nice. And so that when people come to visit, you're like, oh, yeah, look at my beautiful place. And we just stay on the ground floor of intimacy, you know, just like right there. And then someone's like, oh, you have a basement. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, God, no, don't go to the basement. (laughs) That's why all this stuff is shoved. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And I don't even want to see it, you know? So that's why it's down there. A decade ago, actually a little bit longer, like 14 years ago, is when I decided to start to develop a relationship with that basement, with a teacher. And realizing that, you know, that was a part of me. Mm, what kind of teacher was this? So his his name is Ron Baker. He kind of does he's a self-mastery kind of coach and bio bioenergetics coach and teacher, very much about understanding how the first eight years of your life creates a series of patterns that you basically replicate throughout your entire life unless you actually start to become conscious. That is not of- some, but something that somebody who has an eight-year-old <laughs> wants to hear about. <laughs> <laughs> it's really true though. It's like, it's, you know, these first eight years are the most formative. They mm-hmm. are where as children, we look to our parental systems as the blueprint of how to live and not just what they tell us, but how they live has a very direct impact on how a child 
feels loved, has a sense of place, understands their power, understands their worth. Ron was teaching me a lot was just to understand some of those patterns that were set in me a very long time ago and to develop a relationship to them and then to free myself of some of them so that I could operate in the space of newer choices. So going back to the house analogy is I started to develop a relationship to the basement and then I had a relationship to the upper floors too, which is where the art of my artist studio was and my healer's studio. And so when people came to visit me or when I would go into organizations or companies, I'm not just showing up at the ground floor. I'm bringing my basement and I'm bringing my upper regions as well because all of me is in service to whatever I'm doing, whether it's just us hanging out and having a conversation or if I'm in there to fundamentally impact an organization in some way. There's no edited version of me. Obviously, there is a I'm thoughtful about the environment and the space, but I believe bringing all of us to all that we do is one of the most profound experiences that we can have. See, I find that really interesting because I think that's in general what people aren't doing. Yeah. Um, you know, we go into workspaces saying that I'm just here to work. I'm just here to do my job, to clock in, clock out. I'm not here to make friends. Considering that we spend most of our time at work, yeah. a lot of us, that's a, that's a bit sad, really. And it's a huge lost opportunity. And I think it's changing. So uh, it's, I think it's, it's happening a little bit more in the U.S. right now, as, f- as far as I can see. It's a little bit more on the West Coast of the U.S., where there is this movement, especially, and I think it's also happening in the startup world as well, younger companies who understand that there's a few really important connections. One is the connection between employee safety, emotional safety, and creativity. There is a direct link. There's actually a physiological link, right? If I feel safe emotionally in a space, my prefrontal cortex gets to be open and turned on. And then I'm able to actually make rational choices, come up with new ideas, things like that. If I feel unsafe, that prefrontal cortex physiologically shuts down. My amygdala fight or flight is turned on and I'm basically just trying to survive. Yeah, so we're kind of not just talking about sort of nice feelings, but we're talking about actual measurable productivity. Yeah, absolutely. Direct impacts to productivity, creativity, innovation. And so I think especially in the in the creative agencies space and in innovation in startups, companies are understanding that like the health and the vibrancy of your culture, how safe people feel, how connected they feel has a direct impact to how well they perform, how how innovative their ideas are, and how sustainable, like how much they're willing to play the long game. Mm. If you put me into a fight or flight uh, environment, chances are I'm not going to last very long because I just can't. I cannot function in an environment. I mean, we all know this, right? Like if you have to go into a place and you're like, oh God, bite down. I just got to bear it. <laughs> you're not going to last that long. If you want people to play the long game, be committed to be inspired. If you want people to be able to th- come up with ideas that the world has never seen before, if you want them to partner together to build cool shit, well then you better create an environment that feels great. That feels nurturing. That mm-hmm. feels fertile. 
Yeah, see, I can see that happening, but I think in situations where I've heard that people are making an attempt, it seems like a lot more of a checklist type thing. Mm -hmm. Like we'll have a circle in the morning, have a quick check-in and maybe we'll throw in some yoga at some point in the day. Job done. Everybody better feel happy now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, you're totally right. Um, There's there's a slight nuance and difference that, that goes from that, kind of experience of like, Hey, we're checking all the right things. You know, we're like, we have installed all the right programs, but there's still the environment doesn't feel safe. And it's primarily because I'm not going to entirely blame it on leaders, but there's a huge leader responsibility here. And the leaders of an organization, um, I do a workshop. Um, it's a seven week course with leaders that's called it's on leadership mastery. Uh, We spend three to four sessions understanding that, as a leader, you are constructing an environment, okay? You are literally, like, you know the concept of, like, holding space? You basically enable a person to feel a certain thing. You just hold space for them. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in business, you are literally doing the same thing. You are constructing an environment within which the best work can be born. The construction of that environment is entirely based on the things that you say, the things that you do. And then there's this whole unspoken piece, which is what's happening inside your emotional body and your physiology based on your patterns, history, and trauma. Mm. All of that collectively constructing an environment. So you could walk into a space and be like, hi, people, I'm here to make a a warm, comfortable space for everyone. (laughs) Right? And so you're like, I'm saying the right things. And I'm like, hey, you did a good job. I'm Mm. doing the right things. Mm. But the resonance doesn't feel safe. Mm. And that's because leaders have to do the work to understand what's happening on the inside. Where are my tendencies? Where is my trauma? Where is because all of that is constructing the environment for my people. Mm. So that is the bringing your whole self to the work situation that we're talking about. Absolutely. Because the thing is, it's coming with you anyway. Mm. You know, it's like you, like you may think like, oh, well, my work self and my life don't have to, don't have to connect. I can check, you know, life at the door. I'm like, yeah, well, if you're having a shitty day at, in life or you just like fought with your partner, you're telling me that's not coming with you to the office. And if you have a crappy day at the office, you're not bringing it to the dinner table. Mm. We're not robots. We can't compartmentalize it all coming with us mm-hmm. so I think we, we think that we're meant to yes I, I think for a long time we were thought that we were meant to because you know you think about the term human resources it's right like people are resources in order to reach some sort of objective as opposed to a playground and environment that enables people to grow in the pursuit of a common mission towards developing something that is both profitable and good for the world. Mm. That is the future of business. Not this like you go show up half of you or a three quarter or a quarter of you show up here, check your emotions and your personal life at the door, punch a couple of buttons and make some TPS reports. And, you know, like then try to go home and drink a bunch of wine in order to deal with the fact that you've got to do all this bullshit every day. Mm. But what if it's not, I mean, from the leader's point of view, the leader has a specific responsibility mm. to create the environment. But what about a worker showing up 
in a situation where maybe it's a very uninspiring workplace and it's not a very safe place to bring all of yourself to work. What yep. happens then? Well, I often tell, I tell people, you know, the creation of a culture is everyone's responsibility. It's not just a leader responsibility. Yeah. So if the, the leaders have the greatest influence in it. First, the level that you have to ask yourself is like, well, am I uninspired because I'm doing something that I don't want to be doing? And it's not my deepest calling. Well, if it's not, well, then, okay, I have to be really clear about that. Cool. I'm doing it just for the money. All right. Well, can I pursue something where I can both make money and be inspired? Let me pursue that a little bit as a mental exercise, as a job hunt exercise, things like that. But if I reach to a point where I'm like, you know what? I can't go pursue my passion. I can't make money out of it right now. And I kind of have to just tough out this job. Well, then how do I make this job as enjoyable as possible? Two things I have to be able to do. One is I really believe meaning is an ingredient we can add to something. So if the job is inherently not so interesting for me, I have to add meaning to it. And that could be anything. It could be, you know what? I don't give a shit about the subject matter, but I care about the people. So the process of interacting with these people feels good. Great. Let me let me make let me use that as my source of meaning let me get inspired by that and then let me do what i can in order to foster an environment that feels cool so i can organize you know whether it's a happy hour or i can like, organize a book club mm-hmm. or i can organize like i have to feel empowered that i can i can do something like that within the environment if i hate the subject matter of what i'm doing and i hate the people <laughs> that i'm surrounded <laughs> by then that's a decent you know uh, that's a decent sign that maybe it's time to explore something that's a little bit more meaningful if you think about a spiritual community what does that offer it's an environment and a group of people right who are there to nourish, meet the needs of a person on a series of different levels, right? So there is a physical level of what is being nourished. There is an emotional level. There's a mental level. And then there's the spiritual level, right? The higher calling, the purpose, all of that. So if I think about an office that understands that in order to really meet the needs of an employee, they have to nourish physically, pay a, pay a, a healthy wage so that someone can live in a, in a in a kind of a healthy way. You have to nourish emotionally, which is create connections between people so that people feel bonded and connected to each other. They just need to nourish mentally, which is giving creating roles that are you know both. Um, uh, that have some rigor to them, that have some intellectual challenge to them as much as the people are supported in those roles, creating environments where people can grow from a skill set perspective um, to become more strategic, more creative, more influential, whatever, right? And then the last piece is the spiritual piece, which is offering, like if you think about the proxy for spirit is is purpose, Right? feeling like you're connected to a higher purpose that we're on a collective mission like imagine a company that's able to meet the needs of an of an individual at all those levels mm. well then hell yeah it's a spiritual community yeah and, i mean we have a personal connection to 
that idea because we are creating a workplace at the moment through our farm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, we have, we talk about things in terms of the holistic context. So thinking about what, what is the spiritual context of the farm for us, it's about appreciating oneness and um, being open to lots of different views on things. I love that. So love that's, that. yeah, that's kind of where, where we're at with that. But I also kind of think about a level of pastoral care as mm-hmm. being important, you know, as, as we kind of develop that idea. Yeah. I mean, so there's a, I went to this conference in Malaga last year and it was part of the, the well-being economy. Yeah. So there's actually a couple of really great organizations in the UK um, mm-hmm. that are sort of at the vanguard of bringing this as not just a movement, but it's actually a new financial paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. It's saying that I'm not simply going to be as an org- as a business going to be growth profit revenue oriented but that I'm going to make financial decisions and business decisions looking at both business health cultural and social health environmental mm-hmm. care environmental health and then individual people health mm-hmm. and that that becomes a strategic decision making framework by which I guide the future of my company. And so, yeah. you know, when you talk about pastoral care, like I think about that is like that has to be at the same level as financial health and individual health and societal health, because then we start to care of things equally. We start to create a system that is way more sustainable, mm. you know, going forward. The Mayans have a term and it's called in Lakesh Alakin. And they would use it as a greeting. So, and what it means directly is, I am another you. And so they would say it to the rising sun. They would say it to their fields and their farms. They would say it to each other when they encounter each other. I am another you. That which we do to the land, that's what that which we do to each other, you're we're doing essentially to ourselves. The fact that you are organizing your farm and your initiatives and your endeavors around this concept of oneness, knowing that that which we do to each other, we do to ourselves, that which we do to ourselves, we do to each other. Wow, that's that's huge, you know? <laughs> and it anchors a certain resonance on the planet that enables more things like this to happen. Well, I, I love what you say about it being sustainable mm-hmm. because it isn't just about what feels good and what feels right, but it's about what actually does work in the long run. Absolutely. Interesting you say that because it's why I don't talk about my work as a cultural benefit to companies or necessarily like a social benefit. The work that I do, whether it's helping leaders grow or whether it's opening people's hearts and minds, has a direct impact to sustainability and productivity. It has Mm -hmm. direct bottom line impact. Um, And so it's, it's really shifting the mindset from this kind of disposable, immediate gratification kind of space that we operate in into like, hey, like, let's start to play the long game. And the long game has to have a longer time horizon and it has to be more sustainable. And the process of getting there has to feel good. Bringing ideas of trust, love, and friendship into the workplace rather than saying these are things that exist 
in my outside life. These are personal things. Yeah. And then when I'm here, I'm just here to work. So I had this recent revelation around us as a human species that we have been trying to kill each other for far longer than we've been trying to be friends with each other. 200 years ago, you're walking through the bush or the forest somewhere. You come across another human. They don't look like you. Chances are like an axe is going to come hurtling at your head, right? So we, while our physical worlds have evolved where you can go walk down the street, be greeted by a stranger and not be worried that an axe is going to come at your head. While our physical worlds has have evolved, our physiologies, our, our physical bodies have not. So we're still scared to death of each other, which is why so many people, like I can't tell you how many people I work with are scared to present, right? Present a, a point of view or present in front of a group of people um, how many people are scared to like ask that person out on a date or mm. ask a friend for something or just we're kind of we're just scared to death of each other. So we're walking around with these hunter gatherer instincts in our Ex- modern bodies. Exactly. Exactly. And so what I'm developing is something called a trust quotient and a trust profile. And I'm going to try to take like a mathematical kind of approach to this thing to basically help people understand for the different categories that you have in your life. So that could be personal relationships, professional relationships, boss manager relationships, um, romantic relationships, um, child relationships. Um, Then looking at like financial systems, health systems looking at a bunch of different areas of your life and then assigning a score to say, how much trust do I have for that thing? Because oftentimes we have more trust, like let's just say you have more trust in, you know, personal relationships and romantic relationships, but work relationships, you're like, uh-uh, don't trust those people. Shady bunch of bitches, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's because we're kind of pitted against each other. It's a competitive competitive world of work and it also could be some trauma that i've experienced in the past around going into an environment where i felt like unsafe and i felt betrayed Mm. that's really interesting because i think that workplaces often remind people of being at school yeah true exactly so that's a really good point right like so that mirrors some sort of trauma i've had before and so i'm bringing that with me what i'm trying to do is help people to understand where the areas that you are carrying trauma of betrayed or broken trust with you without your knowledge into it into a new area and that's affecting how open you are to bond collaborate co-create with someone Mm -hmm. and that so that's the trust quotient portion and then the other part is the trust profile which is well now that you understand that you have a little bit of doubt and broken trust historically based on something that happened what you now need is an environment to help heal or repair that trust and how that has to happen person by person is unique our trust profile is kind of like our love language it's like though all the ways that my trust has been historically broken those same ways they have to now be repaired so if i have broken trust for example from an absentee parental system well then i know going to an environment how trust is repaired with me is through someone being present and being consistent. And that becomes my trust profile. Like the more I think about this, the more I'm like, holy shit, like the next chapter of our human evolution 
is not an individual game. It is a collective process. We are, in Ram Dass's words, walking each other home. And in order for us to do that, we have to hold hands and we have to support each other. And But the first thing is we have to feel safe with each other. So it's I'm going to be developing a lot of work around this that both is for individuals and for organizations and for communities to understand is that we are all trying to heal trust. And sometimes we're establishing it. Sometimes we're building on the trust that is inherent. And sometimes we're repairing broken trust. That's a unique situation for each person. But if we're able to do that step by step and our physiologies, our physical bodies actually start to feel safer with each other, well, then I think that lays some foundation for really exciting things to happen in the future around Mm -hmm. how we bond, how we come together, the sharing economy, the collaboration economy, the creative economy. Mm, I mean, it's interesting, actually, you talking about about collaboration, just thinking about uh, this sort of abundance mindset. Actually, what I was saying about the competitive nature of work. Yeah. I actually think that that's probably a trauma response. Yeah. That we view each other competitively because of what's happened to us you know it, it's kind of safer to keep people at an arm's length and view them as the enemy yeah rather than to do the work and draw them closer well absolutely and i think you know you bring up the abundance mindset that's that is based on the scarcity mindset that there's yeah. not enough actually mm-hmm. you know that i have to, in order for me to win you have to lose yes in order for me to have i have to take it from you and I've definitely encountered people in my life who have that belief that like, you know, I, I have to take from you so that I have, and unfortunately you don't. And, you know, <laughs> I think if anything, the last few years of like just the growth of the economy has shown us is that wealth, we just keep creating more. Somehow it just, we just keep making more. <laughs> so I think we have to trust that there is an abundance of what we need and that collectively if we do it together we can get there faster we can get there in a in a way that serves both of our needs you know i i think as a collective we've experienced martyrdom oh i have no needs i just work for the collective and then we've experienced selfishness which is fuck everyone else it's just my thing it's my and i think we've already experienced both of those ends Mm-hmm. Now we get to kind of find the middle point, which is how do I meet my needs and the needs of the collective at the same time? And that's kind of what I'm excited about, you know, in, in us moving fo- forward. In practical terms, how do we move into trust and abundance and sort of away from a competitive, isolationist kind of view of work? Yeah. Well, I think the first step is the inner work is understanding what is your what is your trust profile how what are the areas in your life where you show up with a lot of trust and where has your trust historically been broken you're going to look at whether it was through job situations through friend situations through school through your parental system because chances are there's probably some stuff that goes pretty far back mm. so first is understanding that how has your trust historically been broken and how has that broken trust impacted your ability to connect and collaborate and be with people today so that's the first step 
is mm-hmm. the inner work. Then the second step is once you understand how it's been historically broken, you have perspective around what you need in order for it to be repaired. So if, like I said before, if it was broken by someone being absent, it'll be healed and repaired by someone being present. And so then I have to ask for that. I have to start to ask for what I need and I can go with whether it's my boss or, you know, um, I can just simply say like, look, for me, like consistency is a really important thing. Can we have a weekly one-on-one where we just connect and we just talk through everything that's happening? You know, and maybe for me, because um, a meal is important, like every other one, can we have it over lunch? I have to be able to ask for what I need. Um, and if I'm asking for what I need and the environment, isn't that responsive to giving it to me? Well, then it gives me another piece of input to, to helping me understand whether or not I'm in the right environment that will help me repair the yeah. trust or heal trust. Or if I'm in an environment that's actually only going to make it worse. And then I get to consciously choose, well, do I stay or do I start to look for something that feels more compatible with how I need to grow and evolve. Do you think that any workplace can become that environment? I think if there's consensus that there's a desire to get there, that means both from a leadership perspective um, and from a people perspective that like, hey, we want to build an environment that feels inclusive, that feels safe, that if there's consensus around that, especially from the highest level of the company, then absolutely. You got to probably bring in some experts. You got to probably bring in some support. Um, But it absolutely can happen. If there's not consensus and especially not from a leadership perspective, like the work that I do, if I'm not bought in at the CEO level and uh, the CEO and I fully understand the value of the work that I'm doing, I don't really get involved. It has to be a really high level in, in involvement because otherwise I'm trying to like sell something that the company doesn't, isn't at the highest level ready to buy. Where does spirituality come in in terms of thinking about things like trust? I think if you think about spirit as this sort of indescribable essence that emanates from the heart that surrounds us that creates this kind of liquid environment that we just like, mm, just like love being in, right? The place of the heart, it is waking up in all of us. And so I think it's very much our job is to awaken the heart in the work setting. That means bring it into how you connect to someone, how you connect to your boss, how you connect to your direct reports, how you connect to your peers. Do they know you? Are you willing to reveal? parts of you and be vulnerable. It doesn't mean you have to like empty the entire bag and like put everything out on the table. But if I'm guarded and I'm just like, you're only getting like the work business person. Well, then chances are people are going to respond in kind. They're going to give you the same thing. But if I'm like, you know what? I want more. I'm willing to reveal a little bit more about who I am. I bring people a little bit more into that basement and then I show them the ground floor and I take them to the upper reaches. Well, that's intimacy. And that is very possible in a work setting. My closest friends come from the the jobs I've had historically. So the realm of spirit, just to make it really simple, is kind of the area of the heart, the area of connection, the area of intimacy, 
and let's bring that in there because mm-hmm. it's and I think we all have the, the potential to do that. Does it require a little bit of bravery? Yeah, of course. There's resistance. There's also, you know, a, probably the sense of appropriateness mm-hmm. of what people have deemed appropriate for what kind of environment. Um, and for me, the concept of appropriateness is an interesting one. Um, mm-hmm. It's there is a level where I have to be mindful of what is appropriate, right? Like I'm not going to go into a job interview and immediately start talking about like my trauma with my mother. Not really appropriate. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Bit confusing. Um, Exactly. And so I have to have my spidey sense and my intuition turned on to understand what is appropriate. So the other level of it is, does it inhibit me and not reveal the totality of me or uh, some interesting parts of me by not sharing? Oh, but you know what? That I was born in India and I'm a, I'm a son of an immigrant and I'm an immigrant story and I've understand what it feels not to belong. And so I work really hard to belong. Like, mm. is that, Appropriate and relevant in an interview? Yeah, probably. And is that probably a little bit more than probably an average person would share? Probably. But am I willing to be known in a variety of ways? Definitely. Yeah, so you've kind of found that midway point there. Exactly. So there's no like hard and fast answer that like, this is appropriate, this is not. I think we have to, you know, continue to use our hearts and our minds to assess and judge what feels right to us when it feels right and be willing to kind of continue to push the boundaries a little bit simply because we want to liberate more of us and bring more of us into the light and mm-hmm. share more of who we are because when we do and when we're seen something beautiful happens mm-hmm. and that feels good so i worked for three years at this company in portland oregon um, in the u.s And it is a kind of innovation and creativity studio, Uh, about 220 people. When I was there, when I joined, I was 120 people. I started a discipline, a department for them called human development. And the purpose of human development was to help people grow both in work and in life. So as much as I did coaching and workshops on leadership, strategic thinking, creativity, conceptual thinking, I did workshops on life, building a life that reflects who you are, expanding your identity, bringing more of you to the office, etc. When I first, I remember this very clearly, like when I first got the role, nothing like this existed at the company. And so I was just basically building something new. And I had full support of the the C-suite there and the CEO and the chief creative officer and the COO. And they were like, you know what, you, we trust you, build what you think is appropriate for the environment, what's relevant for the environment, and just test it. If it works, the environment will accept it. And if it doesn't, the environment will just reject it. So we don't have to be on you trying to make something like assessing whether or not it works or not. The environment will tell us. That's kind of a really cool place to work. Oh my God. Incredible place to work and um, incredible leaders. And so they basically got out of the way. They were like, you have a title, you have the space, you have our support, go. And so I was really thoughtful about a few things. One is that there were three kinds of people in that company. There were the classic early adopters who were like, holy shit, you're here. We totally need that thing. We're so excited. 
there were the classic laggards who were like, oh, what is that thing? We don't need that thing here. <laughs> and then, and that was a solid third. And then there were the people in between who were like, I, uh, you know, I'm just going to like let the early adopters go first and we're just going to see how it works. And then I'll <laughs> determine whether or not I think it's like full of shit or if it's like worth it. And so I was very aware that all these three kind of tranches of people existed. I could feel it and sense it in the space around me. And I was like, cool. Well, I'm not going to try to like come in here and be like, ta-da, here's my 14-point plan in order to dot, dot, dot. I was like, let me learn this environment first. And I spent weeks just talking to people about what they needed, what the environment, how the environment was working, how it wasn't working. And, and then I very kind of thoughtfully and slowly installed one thing at a time, assessed if it worked. And I didn't, I, and I didn't hold too many things too precious. And so if it worked, I would keep using it and I would keep rolling it out. And if it didn't work, I would just kill it and start again. And I was there for three years and eventually was able to build a really beautiful program of human development. I was able to hire two people to run it. And then I finally left it to those two people. And now it's turned into a much bigger thing with more people. And it's um, pretty core to that organization. I just think it's really interesting how many of us are talking about how do we do life together well? About yeah. How do we, you know, how do we gather people? I mean, it, it really says that something culturally is happening in mm -hmm. lots of different contexts. I agree. I totally agree. That's why I love this concept of yours around revillaging because the concept of revillaging is like, well, hey, we've done it before, right? We're, we can do it again and we can do it you know, almost better because we have a lot more things at our disposal. Yeah, and we probably uh, won't be killing each other randomly. Exactly. You know? <laughs> you know, like we have a little bit more consciousness around like, you know, if you like steal too much grain, I'm not going to like try to like string you up. And, you know? <laughs> um, well, we've, we've amassed more connect collective knowledge over the course of history. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so that's why you know I, I agree with you I do think there's a movement and I, I can't tell you how many conversations throughout the world I've had with people who are like yes I'm searching for my tribe I'm ready to bring it together I'm ready to activate my people um, towards a common goal so and, and then in some ways the sharing economy is basically, even though it's a financial model right now, is showing us that there is a market for it. You know, like, hey, I'm not using my car. You use it and pay me for it at the same time. You know, like, I'm not using my apartment. Like, you use it. Like, ooh. So the sharing economy is showing us that there is, like, an appropriateness and a, like, an okayness to something that we wouldn't have thought about, you know, 50 years ago. You know, because ownership was so much more important than having the experience of the thing. Mm. So as experience and co the collective and sharing becomes more of a social construct, less of a financial model, I think we're going to be coming together just more naturally, more often. Because, again, I think the, the next phase of human evolution isn't an individual one. I think it's a collective one. You know, we're approaching it kind of in a financial way right now because it's it's the language we understand it will translate into an experience of the heart because that will be the language that endures that wraps up the fourth episode of revillaging 
It was my first video chat recording and there were some definite hiccups. It's not technically where I would have liked it to have been, but hopefully you got as much from the conversation with Sahil as I did. If you've enjoyed it, please rate, review, subscribe and share it. It helps others to find revillaging. If you'd like to chat with me about anything raised in the episode or where you think I should take the podcast, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at Adele JK in both places. Or you can contact me through my website, adelejarrettcar.com. That's where the show notes for this episode will be. The link is in the episode description. <laughs>